Um, last Sunday I spoke about comradeship and contrasted that to fellowship, and this morning I will talk about another ship. And even though I told you my story of being in the Army, it may start to sound like I should have spent time in the Navy. This third ship is citizenship, and we're going to look at that briefly this morning. So, this is not in my notes, but I realize that some of what I say this morning here could be uh, confusing a little bit, so I'm going to do two things now. I'm going to plug Wednesday night Bible class, where you have the opportunity to come back and ask questions, and that's part of fellowship, being able to come together and study God's Word, but especially in the open environment where questions can be asked and things clarify. So I'd encourage you to do that. But if you don't understand something I say because it's confusing, because I, I like to take complex things, think about them and make them more complex than they need to be. And so I realize I may raise questions in your mind or you may misunderstand something I might say. So seriously, ask me what I mean. And since I have notes, I can refer back to exactly what I'm talking about and try to clarify anything that might be confusing. Because citizenship is a, a kind of interesting and yet confusing thing sometimes. So in a couple of weeks from now, my son Ben and his three children, our grandchildren from Oregon, are going to come visit us here and you'll get to meet them. Our daughter-in-law, Yasmin, she'll not be able to come, so I'm a little disappointed you won't get to meet her. But she'll be going down to Texas to meet her mother, Gloria, and her younger sister, Carolina, who is coming to Texas to, Carolina that is, is coming to Texas to attend the Adventures and Missions Program, sometimes called AIM, at the Sunset International Bible Institute there in Lubbock, Texas. And so Yasmin's mother and sister will be flying into Texas from Mexico because that's where they're from. They're citizens of Mexico. And then Yasmin, until recently, she was also a citizen of Mexico. So just recently, I say recently, it's been a few months ago, in January this year, she took the test and became a United States citizen. So she's now a citizen of the United States of America. So our granddaughters, who you will meet, Shannon and Quali, they're dual citizens. They're, they were born in Leon, Guanajuato State, Mexico. So they're citizens of Mexico by birth, but with one parent who is a natural-born American citizen, our son, they're also citizens of the United States by relationship. One citizenship by birthplace and one citizenship by relationship. Yasmin, on the other hand, is a, chose to become a citizen of this country. So she went through the whole paperwork process, the, uh, the test. I'm glad Maricel and Jim are here this morning because they know exactly what I'm talking about because Maricel recently made the choice and gained her U United States citizenship. So she understands what that's like and Jim too. And there may be others like Yasmin and Maricel and in this audience that have changed citizenship, become American citizens. And I don't know all your stories yet, so you'll be able to share those with me, perhaps. But they, Yasmin and Maricel, they made a choice to become an American citizen. So you can be a citizen by birthplace, by relationship, or by choice. 
Changing citizenship, though, you may understand, is no small decision. And in fact, you might be surprised to know that not everyone who has the ability or opportunity to change citizenship chooses to do so. Not everybody wants to be, for instance, a citizen of the United States of America. And there are many good reasons for not doing that. And some of those might be because of the person's love of their own country. Because it's hard to imagine, but people generally love their country just as much as we love ours. Or they may love their culture. Or it may be because of family that they choose to retain their citizenship. So not everyone who comes into this country chooses to become an American citizen. So why do people leave one nation, come to another, and choose to change their citizenship? There may be many reasons, but there are three that came to mind, and it could be one of these reasons, or it could be a blending of these reasons that people make that choice. First, there's the, the, uh, the choice to escape something. And many people we know, and if we watch the news, they choose to become citizens of this country because they want to escape something in their own country, whether that is war or persecution or poverty. Other people leave their country and choose to become a citizen of another nation because they want to gain something. Some leave to escape, some leave to gain something, such as an education or security political or physical or economic security that they don't have in their own country of origin. And then a third reason that can play into it is love. So there are many people who end up becoming citizens of another country because of their relationship with someone that is a citizen of that country. So for instance, Yasmin, she loves her country, Mexico, but she loves Ben and her children enough that in living in this country, she's chosen to be a citizen of this country. So love plays into that many times. We know several people, though. Not, you know, we think about our, our country and people becoming American citizens, but we know people you know, from our experiences in the world where they've made the choice to renounce, let go their American citizenship, and become citizens of other countries. So it works in all directions. So we know people from Mexico. There's a, a young lady, Evelyn, who married a young man, Daryl, who is Scottish, and became, she became a citizen of the United Kingdom, of the UK. And we know an American, Brian, who he did the same thing. He met a young lady in the UK, Katrina, and married her, and he became a, a UK citizen. And in addition to that, he became a Bobby as well, if you know what a Bobby is. So he's a, he's a UK citizen now. Changing your citizenship is a serious decision. It's a very serious business. And it comes with benefits, of course, but it also comes with responsibilities. In many cases, people make the change for the benefits primarily, and they don't necessarily recognize or understand the responsibilities that come with that. And of course, up to this point, I've been speaking strictly about national, earthly, physical citizenship, like the citizenship we have based on birth, relationship, or choice. But you might be surprised when I say that almost everyone in this room this morning 
has made a choice to change their citizenship. And sometimes we have done that without ever recognizing that we've made a decision there. And that, of course, is our choice to become a Christian. When we become a Christian, and when we're baptized, we're often thinking about salvation and about our relationship with God. But we've also taken on, we've made a decision to gain a spiritual citizenship that is different from our national citizenship. I could call it Christian citizenship, even though that's not a term you'll find in the Bible. But just to differentiate between our American or Canadian or Mexican citizenship, I'll call the other spirit, or Christian citizenship. We think of ourselves as Christians, and that's how we call ourselves, and that's the right, that's the right word for us to use. But the word does, which has come to mean a follower of the religion of Christ, had an earlier meaning and connotation to the people in the first century, to the people who became Christians then. And we felt if we fail to connect our name of a Christian to our Christian citizenship, then basically we just use the word Christian as a label. And we use that to differentiate ourselves from other groups, other people. As in, I'm a Christian, I'm not a Buddhist. I'm, I'm a Christian, I'm not some other group. And so Christianity and the idea of being a Christian becomes a mere label. But in its original use, the word Christian had the connotation that an individual was a member of the cult of Christ or partisans of Christ versus the cult of Caesar or the partisans of Caesar, because that's what the original Greek word meant. And that was... It was quite literally, they were saying that I belong to Jesus as king versus I belong to the emperor as king. And even in that time, that day and age, when the emperor believed they were the son of God, that they were immortal, the person who called themselves a Christian was saying, I belong to this real son of God versus this earthly person who claims to be a son of God. And so as a contrast in allegiance, and that's an important aspect of our choice that we have to understand. It was clearly an identification based on who those Christians recognized as king. And it was a choice between Caesar or Christ that was literally life or death. Because Christians were said, you have to choose, renounce Christ as your king and honor Caesar as king, or die. And that's why Christians died for their beliefs. We talk about martyrs. That was the crux, quite literally, of the issue. Who is your king? And in our day and age, especially in our country, where we don't suffer persecution, we often miss that aspect of our relationship with Jesus, Jesus Christ. So why is it important that we recognize our true citizenship, our Christian citizenship? Mainly because we're told about it in the New Testament. So Paul, writing to the Gentile Philippian Christians in the book of Philippians, contrasts those Christians with people or others who have chosen to become enemies of the cross. And in Philippians 3, Verses 20 and 21, Paul writes, 
But we are different because our citizenship is in heaven. And from there, we eagerly await the coming of the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who by exerting that power which enables him even to subject everything to himself, will not only transform but completely refashion our earthly bodies so that they will be like his glorious resurrected body. Our citizenship is in heaven. Then in Ephesians 2, verse 19, Paul, writing to the Gentile Christians in Ephesus, reminds them that they, the Gentiles, are brought, ne brought near by the blood of Jesus Christ. And so he writes, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, outsiders, without rights of citizenship, but you are fellow citizens with the saints, God's people, and are members of God's household. So how do we manage to view ourselves as both citizens of a kingdom that is not of this world, as Jesus described it in his response to Pilate, and a physical kingdom that we actually see and live in every day of our lives? And it's not easy to do. It's something that requires focus on our parts. We almost have to say to ourselves, I am a Christian first. I'm an American or Mexican, or Canadian, or any other country, second. But an even better way to say it is that I am a Christian who happens to sojourn in the United States of America, or sojourn in Canada, or sojourn in Mexico, because that's a more accurate way of describing our life here on this earth. Why is this frame of reference important to us? It helps us First, to determine our priorities in life. It also helps us to put worldly issues into perspective, things that are happening in our own country or in the world around us that raise concerns in our lives. And it also helps us to determine our behavior and how we act with our neighbors. And I use that word neighbors in the way it was used in our class this morning, talking about how Jesus said that, we should love our neighbors as ourselves. Neighbors being anybody you encounter. You see, when we choose to believe, and by believe in this case I mean have faith that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, then we're saying that He is a Lord and King. That's even regardless of whether we decide to become obedient and become Christians. But to recognize Jesus, just to understand and believe that he is the Son of God, puts us in the position of where we have to make a choice. We have to decide who we're going to serve. Jesus and God, or ourselves, and ourselves could be expanded to our country, our community, or whatever. People choose to follow Christ for the same three reasons that people choose to change their earthly citizenship. To escape something... And in this case, it would be most likely to escape hell or to gain something. And that's another way, the other side of the coin, to gain eternity, and we could say heaven. And then there's love. In some cases, we become Christians out of love for family, love for our spouse, or love for others, for, for reasons of wanting to please someone. And all these reasons can be good enough to start. There, any reason is good enough to become a Christian. But it's not where we want to leave our Christianity. I'm afraid 
Oftentimes when we confess Christ, and when we use that phrase, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, we mostly miss out on implications of what that means that the first century Christians would not have missed at all. They understood citizenship. They understood the Roman Empire. They understood exactly what was at stake when they made a choice to proclaim Jesus Christ as king. So we are choosing a king. We have chosen, in many cases, a king. He's a savior, but he's the king of a kingdom, and we're part of that. So very briefly, I want to talk about three dangers in misunderstanding the nature of Christian citizenship. And this, I, I will admit, is very oversimplified. But first, we can think that we are dual citizens, that we are both, have both an earthly national allegiance and a heavenly spiritual allegiance. So a dual citizenship, like my grandchildren, some of my grandchildren. We can take the extreme view that our Christian citizenship means we have to take action in this world to make our current nation, whatever nation that is, into some kind of kingdom of heaven on earth, a physical kingdom. And finally, or thirdly, we can view our citizenship as being broken into two phases. And truth is, this may be the most dangerous. One which is a physical now phase, our American citizenship, Canadian, Mexican, whatever, and that our future citizenship is out there in the future, or should have said other citizenship, is out there in the future in heaven, and that there are two different things lived out at two different times. So let's look at each of these. First, we can, the danger of the first is that we can view ourselves as dual citizens. And in this case, as I said, an earthly national citizenship and a spiritual heavenly citizenship. And that view puts us in the position of having to serve two masters, as it were, without even necessarily thinking about it or being conscious of it. If we believe that each citizenship has equal weight or equal importance, then we're going to always be determining which one has more impact on my life at this given moment. And we may not think about that consciously, but our actions will tell what we are thinking and which one we believe is more important. So we're called to live in this world, but not be of this world. And it's really not as difficult as it sounds. So I can give you an example from our lives, kind of like last week. Last week I gave you an example mostly from my life. This week, this is an example from my family's life. We lived in the United Kingdom for three years. And so, during that time, we were U.S. citizens, but we were physically living in the realm, the kingdom, the United Kingdom of Great Britain, Scotland, Northern Ireland. And while we were there, we lived in a British village. We drove on the left-hand side of the road. We paid parish council taxes. We did all the things that we were required to do within the United Kingdom, but at no point had we become a British citizen, at no point had we given up our United States citizenship. So we were living with one citizenship in another land. And people do it all the time. And people, you know, maybe in this room right now are doing that. So it's not, as Christians, we don't become dual citizenships. We become citizens 
of the kingdom of God, and then we live it out in our earthly location, whatever citizenship we have. But beyond doing those things that allowed us to live in Great Britain without getting in trouble with the, with the queen, we also represented the United States. Not officially, by any means, but everything we did in our village was a, an example of how Americans act and live and could have been a good example or a bad example. And as Christians, we do the same thing wherever we are in the world. We are living out our Christian citizenship in the, in the face of everyone that we encounter. And what we do, of course, just like as an American visiting or living in another country, paints a picture of what that person is like. It has a big impact on how people feel about our country, in the case of like our experience in the United Kingdom, or about Christians in the case of our communities, our neighbors, and the people we encounter every day. The second danger is to go to the other extreme, and we believe we are called to restore some kind of kingdom here on earth. In other words, our spiritual citizenship becomes a militant citizenship. Here's where we might get tricky, and you may have questions, and ask me or come Wednesday. But I'll give you two examples that go way back. The Zealots, and it's very interesting, last Sunday at the uh, small group, we watched an episode of The Chosen that introduced Simon the Zealot. And it was very, I don't know, I thought, I had not been thinking about him in terms of this sermon, this lesson, but it really painted the picture of how the Zealots were in the first century and what motivated them. And they were very serious about their Judaism. So the zealots, they were looking for a Messiah to come as king of Israel and restore the nation. And in that particular time period to overthrow the Roman occupation of their country, of Judea. So they misunderstood the role of the Messiah. But it seems that almost every Jew did at the time, including the disciples, those, those chosen individuals that surrounded Jesus and followed him most closely. And even in Acts chapter 1, after Christ has risen, the last thing they're asking is, are you going to restore the kingdom at this time? And Jesus, of course, says it's not for you to know. And then he ascends into heaven and leaves them kind of hanging there. So the zealots and all the Jews, for the most part, misunderstood Christ's purpose on earth. And ultimately, well, the zealots were a lot like the Pharisees in that case. And they let their holiness be militant. The zealots, and I'm assuming you know what they did, but they, different sects of the zealots would kill Romans, would kill taxpayers, would kill anybody collaborating with Rome. And they would also kill Jews at different times if they believed that they were somehow not as holy as they should be, that their unrighteousness would cause the Messiah to not come. The result ultimately was the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70. They are not the only reason, but they played a part in it. And then the sect itself was pretty much wiped out in Masada a few years later. So their attempt to establish a messianic kingdom failed. And that's not what Christ came to do at all, as we know. Jump forward about 400 years, and we have Constantine, the emperor of Rome, and what I call the post-Constantine Christians. So Constantine is famously known, well, for a number of reasons. 
But the one example I want to use this morning is his vision of a cross in the clouds. And this vision, in this vision, he was told, by this sign you will conquer. Or in the Greek it's, it said, this, by this you will conquer. And so he had the cross painted on the shields of his army because he saw this vision just prior to a battle. And from that time on, he won the battle. From that time on, his armies bore the cross of Christ on it. And the, the battle standards of, of his Roman armies carried the Cairo symbol of Christ, the first two letters of Christ's name in Greek, on the standards of the Roman army. And there's something very, very wrong about that. Because those armies went on to fight other Roman armies. It was civil war they were doing. And they used Christ as the basis for that. And it's sad to me. He did, along with the co-emperor, make Christianity legal, which is good because it ended persecutions. And he did become a Christian on his deathbed. So you can say that for him. Maybe... We will see him in heaven. I don't know. But the history between Constantine and now is filled with things done in the name of Jesus Christ that are terrible things. Many, many good things have happened. But going back to what I was saying about being an example, many people hold those things against Christ and against the church. And, and this is a sad thing. So even now, I mean, there's a, this is not something that's uniquely American, and it was not developed in America. It goes back, the grappling with our relationship between Christ and our Christianity and our civic duties and how we live life out in the world as Christians has been discussed for hundreds of years. Martin Luther, he wrote about it, and, and from that point to now, Many, many books have been written about. What does this mean to be a Christian in an earthly world? And in some cases, what that has led to is this idea of Christian nationalism, which a very small group of people probably actually understand and follow. But it's the idea of restoring some kind of Christianity as a national entity. And it's not, again, unique to the United States of America. But Christ did not come to establish a physical kingdom in the first century, in the fifth century, or even now. That's not what it's about. And the scary thing is, of course, that what we can see and hear now in our world is the just anger and animosity and ridicule that is out there between groups of people who may both be Christians, but are dis in disagreement about what does it mean to be a Christian in this country. What does it mean to be a Christian in the United States of America? And not unique to here, but that's what we encounter. But what bothers me is that, and hopefully bothers all of us, is that what people see, and especially non-Christians, is something that is not found in, in Christianity. Animosity, anger, ridicule, those are not the fruit of the Spirit. Fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. 
and there is no law against such things. None of those things are fruit of the Spirit. And what is sad is that people who are non-Christians see how Christians act, and then that's a good reason or excuse for never considering Christ or Christianity. So I'm not saying we shouldn't participate in our civic duties or that we should just stick our heads in the sand. But as Christians, we have to remember what our role is. Christ commissioned us as ambassadors in this world. And that comes with a great deal of responsibility. Paul refers to himself as an ambassador in chains in Ephesians 6.20. That's talking about himself. But then again, he identifies all of us as ambassadors in 2 Corinthians 5.20 when he writes, So we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God were making his appeal through us. We, as Christ's representatives, plead with you on behalf of Christ to be reconciled to God. So we have a role to play. It's much like when we lived in, in England, representing the United States of America. It was a, a, conscious, a conscious thing that we had to live out. I brought a prop. I will show it to you just for a second. This is my official passport. Just this morning I thought, oh, I still have my official passport from when we were over there. And it, it's kind of neat. But what it says in the back, and Tammy and Caitlin and Ben all had these, so it's nothing that I was doing particularly special. But the back of the passport says, the bearer is abroad on official assignment for the United States government. That's kind of heavy stuff. If you're walking around carrying a passport for your nation, then you think about the things you do. You think about how you act and what you're doing in that country. So I'll show you this and I'll read you that to say, we have an ambassadorship that is even more important than anything this relates to. We have an ambassadorship that's more important than the United States of America's ambassadors to other countries. Every one of us has that role and responsibility as a Christian. Another one of those things that when we choose Christ, we're choosing that responsibility. Can you believe it? There was a third thing, so I'm going to have to hurry. The third danger is just that we view our spiritual Christianity as a future state, meaning that it's something that, that we look forward to in heaven, and we don't consider ourselves having that citizenship here and now. We may view it as being something that occurs after our death, in other words, that we don't really attain citizenship until then. But the fact is, we already have the citizenship, as we've read in those scriptures. We're all citizens of the kingdom right now. And then that being the case, as ambassadors and citizens of this country, but physically in this country, but as Christian citizens, how do we act? And as I mentioned earlier, one of the main things we do is live out lives that show that we have the fruit of the Spirit in our lives, as, we, as I mentioned a minute ago from Galatians 5, 22 and 23. But there are several scriptures that are very specific to how we act in this realm, this physical realm. And just running through them quickly. 
In Romans 13, verses 1 through 7, but, but particularly in one verse, Paul writes to the Christians who were living literally in the heart of the empire at the time, an empire that, that was persecuting Christians. And he said, let every person be subject to the governing authorities. And then he writes again in, in Titus chapter 3, verses 1 and 2, to tell Titus, remind people to be subject to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready and willing to do good, to slander or abuse no one, to be kind and conciliatory and gentle, showing unqualified consideration and courtesy toward everyone. In 1 Peter, it's not just Paul, 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 13 through 17, Peter, writing to the Christians scattered throughout what was then called Asia Minor, says, Submit yourselves to the authority of every human institution for the sake of the Lord to honor his name, whether it is a king or, or one in a position of power, or two governors as sent by him to bring punishment to those who do wrong and to praise and encourage those who do right. For it is the will of God that by doing right, you may silence the ignorance and irresponsible criticisms of foolish people. Live as free people, but do not use your freedom as a cover or pretext for evil, but as, a, as bondservants of God. Show respect for all people Treat them honorably, love the brotherhood of believers, fear God, honor the king. And then Jesus himself in Matthew 22, and he's responding to the disciples of the Pharisees and the Herodians, he says, show me the coin used for the poll tax. And they brought him a denarius, and Jesus said to them, whose likeness and inscription is this? They said, Caesar's. Then he said to them, Then pay to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. Paul, once again writing to Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 through 4, he takes it one step further. Because we can do many of these things that, that are in these scriptures passively. We just have to be good and not break any laws. But Paul tells Timothy to take it a step further and pray for rulers. Pray for everyone. So it's interesting that he says pray for everyone, and then he makes a point of saying pray for rulers. And this is what he wrote. First of all, then, I urge you that petitions, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be offered on behalf of all people, for kings and all who are in positions of high authority, so that we may live a peaceful and quiet life in our godliness and dignity. This kind of praying is good and acceptable and pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who wishes all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge and recognition of the divine truth. I'm convinced we all know these passages. We're all aware on a, on a certain level that there is a, a special citizenship that we, we hold even now that should trump our citizenship in this earth regardless of what nation we live in. Our citizenship that we carry as Christians gives us responsibilities that we need to be conscious of every day of our lives in the world because the way we act as a Christian in, in all aspects of life as an influence on the people around us. They notice us. If they're aware we're Christians, they may 
expect us to live um, up to things that are difficult for us to live up to. But they try to hold us to that. And so we want to be good ambassadors for Christ. So let's end by recognizing that how we understand our citizenship is just as important as how we understand our fellowship that we talked about last week. We want to have fellowship with each other, but we want our fellowship to be true fellowship, not just social interaction. We want to talk about important things and take those things seriously. We also want to consider our citizenship as we go out into the world, recognizing that it is a now thing that we hold, that we live out, and that we do so as ambassadors for Christ in the world. Last week I said, comradeship can be fleeting and maybe last a lifetime, but true fellowship will be eternal. So this week I'm saying, earthly citizenship is fleeting, only lasts a lifetime, but our spiritual citizenship is eternal and based on our recognition that Jesus is our king. We've made a choice or are considering that. And when we choose Christ as king, that means that we are in his kingdom and citizens of that kingdom. So choose carefully and wisely which has priority in your life.